Hark! Inflation's war cry. At least that is what you'll read in the pages of the financial media. And that is exactly what your central bankers need you to believe. Now, admittedly, some commodity prices have gone up. Half of the agricultural and livestock prices are up year-to-date. Copper is up. But these are the results of supply line disruptions and demand surges. The temporary, transitory reactions to the COVO, and not the persistent, broad-based, multi-year inflation carried in by a monetary surge that central bankers suggest. Almost every energy-based commodity is down. Most all industrial metals are down. We address the issue in three segments in this, the 19th episode of Making Sense. First, gold is sauntering up to $2,000, and silver is looking lustily at 30. Inflation, right? Central bank printing, true? Politicians handing out stipends and stimulus, yes? No. Gold has been rising regularly in concert with sovereign bonds since October 2018, signaling deflation, disorder, and danger. Then, in part two, America's dollar is said to be the global reserve currency. But might there be hostile nations scheming furiously to undermine the US dollar? They are, after all, selling US treasuries on net since 2014. Is there a dollar Pearl Harbor ahead? No, precisely the opposite. It's the real reserve currency, the euro dollar, that holds nations hostage, including the USA. And finally, Federal Reserve officials are promoting the notion the central bank will allow inflation to run, run pure and hot. A Bloomberg opinion column called it, quote, a whole new ballgame, baby. I added the baby part. We've heard this before, not only from the Fed, but as children, from Aesop. We knew it then as the boy who cried wolf. That's not inflation's war cry, not in this monetary disorder and economic depression. It's a publicity campaign, a caterwauling. Hello everyone. Today you're going to learn about the US dollar gold, and inflation to help you navigate these volatile times so as to protect your family, your hard-earned wealth, and to share what you've learned with your community. You won't hear what we're discussing on today's show in the mainstream financial media. My name is Emil Kalinowski, and this is Making Sense, a Eurodollar University production. Joining me, as always, is Jeff Snyder, the head of global research at Alhambra Investments, a gentleman that reads Federal Open Market Committee meeting minutes, a gentleman that understands the Treasury International Capital Report, a gentleman that if you woke him up in the middle of the night and asked him, what are the bond yields in the United States for the three-year, he will tell you. Jeff, good morning. Yeah, but I wouldn't suggest waking me up in the middle of the night. That that probably wouldn't end too well because uh, I really do like my sleep. <laughs> <laughs> but I bet you it's possible. I bet you know it. There are a couple of your articles that you wrote uh, recently. You end your articles in kind of a, it would seem like a non sequitur to people who don't know what's going on. You end your article saying, bond yields are here. Bond yields are here. And uh, in our first review, 
we are going to be discussing something that has been traveling in in Bond's uh, company, and that is gold. And you had an article, you wrote it, and it is you wrote it on July 21st. It's a blog post at Alhambra Investments exposing the golden lie. As we record this, I think gold is over 1,900 American dollars. It's approaching its previous record. What motivated you to write about gold? Well, you just stated it, right? I mean, record high. So I'm. It's obviously it's it's a, a gold is, a, is an emotional topic for a lot of people, especially a lot of traditional types of people who believe in a, a monetary system that should look a certain way. Traditional kinds of capitalism, discipline, these kinds of things. So whenever gold rises, there's specific signals that are that are, are interpreted or inferred in from the the uh, rise in the gold price that I don't think they're being recognized rightfully the way things are happening right now. And so as gold goes up, it's an important signal. You should pay attention to gold, yes, but what is it really saying? And what everybody thinks it's really saying is Jay Powell went nuts with the money printer. Here we go. We've got hyperinflation or some kind of runaway inflationary scenario. Governments are spending like drunken sailors, and it's all going to end up like Weimar Germany. That's, that's the mainstream signal that we're supposed to be getting from the gold price. And it's actually, ironically, it's helping central banks and what they're trying to do because it's exactly wrong. We're gonna talk about that. We're gonna talk about the gold signal. We're gonna talk about Jay Powell and inflation. Let's start out, you quoted trading economics. I'm gonna read it right out here. Spot gold rose 0.9% to 1835 an ounce on Tuesday earlier this week a level not seen since September of 2011 on expectations of higher inflation due to prospects that central banks and governments around the world will continue to step up efforts to support the economy's hardest hit by the coronavirus fallout. What is wrong with that sentence? Well, what's wrong with that sentence is that gold is rising not on concerns that central banks and government around the world are going to do too much and, and end up with higher inflation, gold is up because the market is concerned they'll fail at these efforts to re-stimulate and re-energize these economies through these means. And that's what's really driving gold. And that's why it's in um, it's 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 trading in tandem essentially with the bond market and bond yields and the yield curve. These things are all tied together and they're pessimistically saying, no, Jay Powell's got it all wrong. Christine Lagarde's got it all wrong. The risks are rising. This stuff isn't going to work. Not that it's going to work too well, but that it's going to fall short or not, not be a significant enough contribution or it's not going to be stimulus because it never is. Well, as uh, Major Marquise Warren from uh, Quentin Tarantino's Hateful Eight said, let's slow it down. Let's slow it way down. When did gold start rising, if not in response to the most recent uh, central bank actions? Yeah, I think that's an important point to start with because I, I think the the mainstream conventional interpretation is that this gold and this massive spike in gold began in March when Jay Powell started doing all these QE and bank reserves maneuvers and you know the government started building up its Treasury General account and spending and the CARES Act and all these other things. And of course, Europe is doing the same stuff and you have globally coordinated response to what happened in March. And I think the perception is the gold rise began in March, and therefore it's essentially corroborating the idea that the Fed is being inflationary. 
when in fact that's not really true. If you look at where gold started rising, it was all the way back in October of 2018. So a year and a half before uh, Jay Powell ever started with his QE nonsense and, and you know the, all the other stuff that the central banks have done in the wake of the COVID shutdowns and global financial crisis number two, it actually began in early October of 2018 as a culmination of what had happened prior to that, which was all of these deflationary signals in the euro dollar futures curve, the dollar itself, for example, began to rise in April of that year. And all of these things that, that, that built up over time that were saying, look, these pressures in the dollar system are getting significant such that they're probably going to break out and, and cause all sorts of damage. So when we got to October of 2018, that's what we really saw is those things that had been building underneath the surface before that and during 2018, they started to become serious. The, the things that I can think of, uh, the dollar started, stopped falling in January, then started to rise in April. On, on May 29th, the U.S. Treasury market and German bonds exhibited a full-body dry heave. There's a sharp fall in yields. And then, the, as you said, the euro-dollar futures curve inverted. Things were going badly. So, But then what happened from October 2018 to February 2019? Well, then we got our first real taste of what, we call, what we've called euro-dollar number four, which was essentially another global dollar squeeze. And in terms of gold and bonds, what we saw was bond yields started to fall precipitously, and the yield curve began to uh, join the euro-dollar futures curve in inversion. Long before anybody talked about inversion last summer, which you know they, most people watch the yield curve and they only look at specific parts of it, whether the you know like the two-year, ten-year, or the three-month, ten-year, those kinds of things. When very uh, discrete parts of the yield curve had inverted long before last summer. What happened in terms of gold, as all that was going on in the bond market, these deflationary signals, this demand for safe liquid instruments and liquid assets and hedges, the gold price spiked. And it was obviously not because of the inflationary scenario that Jay Powell was still selling at that time, which was, by the way, that was the mainstream convention in the media, as well as all these so-called bond kings running around the media telling you that interest rates had nowhere to go but up. Instead, gold was rising in direct tandem or inverse tandem with bond yields falling and the yield curve twisting into these various small pockets of inversion. So these were very clear deflationary, depressionary, not depression, but deflationary downturn, globally synchronized downturn signals that are not consistent with the mainstream interpretation of gold going up because of money printing and inflation. But then from February to May of 2019, the two disagreed. Yeah, there was a bit of a divergence, and this happens from time to time, where the gold price began to fall while the bond market continued on in its trajectory. The bond market continued to say, you know, hey, there's still problems going on. And you can attribute the, the decline in gold price since late February 2019 to a couple of things. I think there was collateral issues that started to show up in the repo market, especially in terms of repo fails. We saw a spike in fails around that time. But even if you look at it as the opposite of what happened before then, maybe it was some people started to believe what had happened in monetary policy terms, which was Jay Powell, which was who was supposedly aggressively hiking rates because of its inflation and accelerating growth in late 2018. Remember in early 2019, what he said was, we're going to start pausing. And that was supposed to be an enormous help because a lot of people attributed it to these, you know, the these signals of, of these, these negative signals in the economy across the, the, the entire world as you know, maybe the Fed was causing it with its rate hikes. 
Therefore, if the Fed pauses, maybe that maybe maybe that makes things a little bit better. But it, well, for whatever reason, from that point, for a couple months there, gold was a little bit softer, while the bond market continued to signal its its negative all these negative things. Yeah, as you often say, nothing ever goes in a straight line, and that's why we want to look through multiple independent lenses to try to corroborate a story from. May through September of 2019, I was trying to earn a few extra Euro dollars by applying sunblock to wealthy ladies at the Grand Cayman Marriott. What was gold and bonds, U.S. treasuries, what were they during this time period? Yeah, last summer was when people really started to pay attention to the yield curve. And again, it's frustrating because you should always pay attention to the yield curve, not just in these specific instances where specific pieces of the yield curve you know, uh, invert or, or, or tell you something that we're supposed to believe along to, along with mainstream convention. What we had was essentially what everybody called a recession scare. And we can debate whether it was a scare or not, but there's no doubt that for a, for a period there, especially in August of 2019, it really seemed like there was some really serious stuff going wrong. And in terms of the bond market, you saw a massive inversion. The, the yield curve inverted pretty much across the whole curve, even the parts that people watch. So that's why they started watching it. Well, at the same time, as we're getting this downturn, contraction, you know, negative business cycle signal in the bond market, the gold price, you know, skyrocketed, it spiked, it went way higher. And it wasn't because, again, of inflation. It was not Jay Powell. It was not the Federal Reserve. It was not, you know, inflation. In fact, it was the opposite because we were starting to see disinflation throughout markets as well as the global economy. So, again, gold and bonds moving in for the same reasons at the same time, and it wasn't inflation and money printing. No, definitely. The economy all around the world was struggling, and if you weren't paying attention to it because we didn't have our show up at the time, of course, people could have been reading you at Real Clear Markets and at Alhambra Investments, but if people weren't, they sure got woken up in September, in early mid-September. Something happened. What happened from September 2019 through the end of the year, gold and bonds. Well, we finally had a repo market rumble, that something that, that finally signaled that, hey, this stuff is really getting serious. But even before then, we had you know the ECB, which Europe, Europe's uh, downturn was a little bit more advanced than what we saw here in the United States and elsewhere. So in early September, I think it was September 12th, even before the repo event in, mid, in mid-September, the ECB restarted QE again, having stopped it the prior December. So you had central banks starting to become more active again and more active in the way that we are told to consider them. So the ECB doing more money printing, quote unquote, with QE. And then after the repo event in mid-September, the Federal Reserve did its not QE, which was buying treasury bills and saying it wasn't doing QE, along with these repo operations or whatever else, which got classified in the mainstream media as money printing anyway. But what you see in terms of gold in the bond market is all of a sudden, you know, the Fed and the ECB and these major central banks are doing the money printing, but yet the gold price is falling. Again, it's acting opposite. The yield curve actually uh, started to move back toward a more normal situation during the same time, time period, which was essentially the both of these markets together once again saying, well, let's give these central banks a shot. Let's see if it works. You know, it wasn't a major move. It wasn't like the markets were completely buying into the premise behind this monetary quote unquote stimulus, but the markets were willing to give these new programs or these you know restarted old programs, they were willing to give them a couple months a chance to see if they actually 
ended up creating, you know, getting us out of that recession scare that had showed up in the summertime. So gold was down. The yield, yield, bond yield, nominal yields actually backed up a little bit. The yield curve went back a little bit flatter. And so things looked a little bit better for a couple months there. Gold and bonds were strolling merrily down Lover's Lane when all of a sudden from out behind the bush comes the Covo. It's got a billy club. It's got a wolf's grin. And it's, it's hitting its hand like this. It's got a taste for mayhem. Everything went nuts once the virus came. What happened then? And then it seems like then people were – talk a little bit about the upheaval that took place and then how people started to link uh, the printing with gold's rise all of a sudden. Yeah, I'm going to disagree with you a little bit there, Emil. It wasn't COVID that necessarily mugged the markets. In fact, when you look at gold and the bond market, these things started to shift away from that, hey, let's give them a chance, and then back into the uh, what I call the oh shit phase back in the early part of December. So long before we had even heard of COVID, long before we even heard, weeks before we heard, anybody had heard of an outbreak in China, while it was obviously going on in China, but nobody really knew about it, um, the gold price started to go higher. The yield curve started to twist in the wrong direction. The nominal yields started to fall again. So we got, we got the deflationary negative signal all the way back in early December. And then along came COVID. It made everything that much worse. And so as we got, you know, this, what I think was the, the development of, of the euro dollar number four getting more serious in terms of the downturn there. And then on top of it, we add the prospects of what is this COVID shutdown going to do? What is the COVID outbreak? It wasn't a shutdown, but what is this COVID outbreak going to do in addition to all of these negative factors that have been presented to us for more than a year by then? And that's why you see gold price again skyrocket. You see the yield curve fall apart even more. Bond yields start to drop long before we get to late February, which was you know global financial crisis number two. And in global financial crisis number two, first half of March, everything just went haywire. And in terms of gold, gold behaved exactly the way it had during some, some certain parts of the first global financial crisis, which was strictly as collateral of last resort. So as we saw the repo, the repo market, the collateral bottleneck actually show up, that dragged gold price down quite dramatically, especially on the very same days that we saw the outbreak in the collateral part of the repo markets. So essentially during the first half of March, these markets just went haywire because that's exactly what everybody was anticipating all along, that these negative deflationary type pressures were going to create a situation that would look like the first half of March. Jeff, I have just two final questions as we're running out of time for this segment of the show. Gold as collateral of last resort. Who is holding this gold and selling it? Who is using it as collateral of last resort? And, well, you answer that one, and then I've got a follow-up about how you end your article with gold caps that you suggested. Yeah, you want me to name names? <laughs> is, this, is this Joe McCarthy time? We're gonna No, I... Who's anybody? Hedge funds, uh, insurance companies, uh, foreigners, central banks. Well, central banks sometimes have been a supplier of bullion into the market. So you start with bullion banks who have supposedly access to unencumbered or unallocated gold stores that they can then lend in the marketplace in in in, uh, in lieu of treasuries or other kinds of financial capital. And as they're as they're used and mobilized that way. 
whoever's receiving it on the other end, whoever's lending cash based on that collateral, doesn't want physical gold. They don't want paper gold either, so it gets dumped. And therefore, once the gold is used as collateral, it gets essentially mobilized and dumped on the marketplace, usually all at once, and usually in the early morning illiquid part of the hours or illiquid part of the trading hours. So that's why we see these these early morning gold slams that often happen in direct tandem to the you know what we saw in the T bill markets, for example, where yields would just you know, prices of T bills would skyrocket and their yields would drop at times in March below zero, well below zero. Final question. At the end of your article, you say, quote, Powell would be better served ditching his flirtation with yield caps, buying treasuries, and instead proposing to impose them on gold by selling paper bullion. Then again, he doesn't actually need a gold cap because right now everyone is spinning higher gold just the way he wants them to. Uh, Jeff, what is this theoretical idea of a gold cap? Well, it's not a serious idea. It's, it's really trying to you know, make a play on the fact that gold right now is signaling that Jay Powell and Christine Lagarde and Corot and everybody else, they're failing. They're not meeting their mission. Their mission is to convince the world that everything is fine. They've got everything handled, everything covered. Therefore, don't worry. The recovery is coming. Don't, you know, don't, don't think about selling assets. Don't think about, you know, firing workers. Don't think about anything bad because we've got it all covered. And what the rising gold price is saying, no, you don't. You don't have it covered. We're really nervous. This is going to turn out to something not just like March, but maybe worse than March. These deflationary, this, these deflationary pressures that have been building for a couple of years now that have been amplified even further by the coronavirus. What does that what does that look like if it gets even worse? So the gold price rising is not inflationary. It's it's a central bank error hedge that says Jay Powell is failing. But since Jay Powell has this myth and convention on his side, and of course the entire financial media, it's being spun as inflationary. It is an inflationary signal that would signal that Jay Powell is being successful, that he has printed a lot of money, that is going to lead to inflation. And therefore, he's been overly successful. So the idea is if people interpreted gold prices correctly, then he would really need to cap them in order to get them to, you know, to get the gold market to shut up and telling everybody that he's failing, not succeeding. He's failing. Well, this is going to be a controversial uh, article, I feel, in a controversial segment. But if anybody wanted to uh, ask questions about it, they can do so in the YouTube comment section. They can do so on Twitter. They can find you at Jeff Snyder underscore AIP, and they can find me at Emil Kalinowski. Jeff, let's move on to another controversial subject, the U.S. dollar. And not just the U.S. dollar, but let's bring geopolitics into it. Let's talk about de-dollarizing. Let's talk about political intrigue as foreign capitals are setting up the United States for a fall and some sort of uh, spy novel, novel thriller de-dollarization that'll send the United States, uh, you know, stumbling forward. It'll be a monetary Pearl Harbor. Uh, it's the story, the article, uh, it's called Huge Massive Difference, De-Dollarizing Versus Being De-Dollared. You wrote it on July 20th. It's posted at Alhambra Investments. What inspired you to write this article? Well, again, we're, we're encountering these mainstream myths about what's going on in the world. And one of the mainstream myths is that 
central banks and really governments in general are these all-powerful financial forces that you should never, I mean, that they're behind everything. So something happens, it must be because some politician, some powerful politician or, or political institution somewhere wanted it that way. And we've been hearing for more than a decade how, in particular, the Chinese hate the U.S. dollar, and therefore they are working furiously day and night to undermine the U.S. dollar to establish some form of Chinese yuan as a alternative, hopefully to, to succeed the U.S. dollar, because they're trying to strip the United States of its political might in terms of the, the, the global economy. And it's just, you know, it's simply not true. But, that's, but yeah, every time something happens, it's always attributed to this idea that the Chinese are able to, first of all, and willingly want to get this thing done, where they want to de-dollarize the entire world, not just China. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about central banks being central to reserve currency. We're going to talk about the Chinese political intrigue that they're working on this. But first, let's define some terms. We're going to, what is de-dollarizing versus being de-dollared and also something called special drawing rights? That's going to come up during our conversation. Yeah, de-dollarizing exactly what we just said, which was, we're intentionally ditching the dollar to replace, intending to replace it with something else, whatever that something else is. So de-dollarizing is we don't want to use the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency anymore. We're going to move on to something else. Now, being de-dollared is what has actually happened since you know, August of 2007. Not all at once, but is essentially this global dollar shortage that shows up intermittently. And what that does is it's not, it's not that China is essentially ditching the dollar. It's that the dollar is leaving China behind without any kind of alternative to make up that difference. And that's what we're going to talk Monetary tightness is the dollars leave the system and leave nothing to replace them. And we're living with the consequences of a world being de-dollared by default because nobody can intentionally, voluntarily de-dollarize. There's a big difference between those two concepts. And special drawing rights are essentially, you know, what the IMF came up with in the 60s and, and early 70s, I think they became official in 72, somewhere around there, uh, as, an, as, as a, a way of creating a global currency, a global currency detached from national economies and national systems that could fill the role that John Maynard Keynes had dreamed up in, in you know 1940s, what he thought Bretton Woods should be, his Bancor idea. So it's essentially an international currency that could theoretically, theoretically, could replace the dollar as do, uh, performing these functions of a global reserve currency. So if you pick up your handy geopolitical thriller, usually it involves the, the Chinese, the Russians, maybe the Saudis, the Iranians are involved, and there's going to be some sort of scheme, some sort of plan. A moment will occur when the world will then abandon the U.S. dollar and there will be terrible consequences. Now, you know, this isn't the first rodeo because the great power game has been going on. Let's say the European great power game has been going on for, let's say, at least 500 years, right? And there have been plenty of other reserve currencies. Jeff, I know you love reading history. Looking back through time, are you familiar with any previous de-reserve currency-ization? Like, for example, why didn't the Soviet Union, which was infinitely more powerful, infinitely more motivated than the Chinese, why didn't they de-dollarize? 
Well, historically, you know, there's never, there's rarely at times where there's a single reserve currency. There's usually more than one. And because of the way that the global economy developed in regional pockets, a lot of times it were mostly currency blocks rather than a global reserve currency. So, I mean, some, the U.S. dollar being supreme across you know, the entire world is somewhat of a historical irregularity. However, um, you look at, you know, the, the other part of it was what do we need to do in terms of how do we address the fact that we have a U.S. dollar system that's failing? And, yeah, I think the Soviet Union, as you pointed out, Emil, probably wanted to de-dollarize, but it's, you know, it's really about what is a global reserve currency? What does it actually do and where does it actually come from? It's not simply a bunch of politicians getting in a room and passing laws saying that we're going to start denominating all our trade in this specific currency. That's not enough. Currency is a tool that facilitates trade, not just trade, not just merchandise trade strictly, but also financial flows. So you have to have, first of all, infrastructure, depth. You have to have liquidity. You have to have sophistication. You have to have the, the real financial power behind these, what are really markets for currency, in order to facilitate the role, performing the role of global reserve currency. And so, yeah, the Soviet Union, like the Chinese, may have wanted to replace the dollar at certain times, but it's not that easy. You have to develop these really massive, complex marketplaces that the dollar has been able to do since the euro dollar system first showed up in the 50s in an unchallenged way that, you know, you can't just replicate and substitute those processes overnight. And as we've seen with the Chinese, it's been, you know, 11 years now since the, you know, Joao from the PBOC first made his noise about, you know, we need to do something about the dollar in March of 2009. So 11 years later, we've been hearing about how the dollar is going to be replaced and they're no closer to it today than they were back then. And the reason is, again, because it's not that easy. A global reserve currency requires an enormous amount of effort and an enormous amount of resources to make it happen. That point is a really important one, and it's a thread that goes through many of your articles and for many of the questions that I answer on the, in the comments section on YouTube, is it's always focused on well, the central authority decided to do X, and therefore it will happen. But as you just said, this is a key, and why isn't there inflation? It answers so many questions. There's this whole private enterprise system that is bigger, more important, and that needs to be convinced to come along. Private banks need to extend credit. Private businesses need to be profitable so as to create high-quality collateral. And without that, as you say, with the, you can't just say this is the reserve currency if you don't have the private system on your side. Yeah, and the, the interesting thing about especially the euro dollar system is that it had developed outside of the official purview on purpose. I mean, they, they called it benign neglect, which was we have this problem of global reserve currency, a globalizing economy, and the way we're going to solve it is to let the private system solve it for us, which it did. It solved it in a very elegant, in some ways, beautiful way. It just, you know, it overdid it. Well, way <laughs> overdid it in the 90s and middle of 2000s. But, you know, we, the point is we had this system that developed, that solved all of these problems that was an unofficial system. It was a bank-centered system. 
So it was outside the, the statutory authority of the Federal Reserve or any central bank, as well as outside the operational reach of all of the same officials. So it's not like they can just say, having allowed 50 years of this thing to go on by itself and to create all that depth and infrastructure and logistics and, and complicated and complications, all this kind of other thing. They can't just say, we're going to turn it off tomorrow and we're going to start doing something else. You got to, there's a massive, a very lengthy process that you would have to go through to prepare for that day when you could even theoretically do it. There are good people, accomplished people, people that we're friends with who say that no, because look, the foreign uh, governments, let's say Beijing is the best example, they are selling. Uh, Jeff, you talk about this in your article. Why are they selling? Because that's an, that's an undisputable fact. There is a greater majority of treasury debt being sold. And then, very important also, Jeff, you put selling in quotes, in square, scare quotes. Why are they selling and why are you putting scare quotes around it? Yeah, people take, again, they attribute the idea of foreign central banks and governments selling to purposeful intent. They're de-dollarizing. They don't want the dollar anymore, so they're, they're ditching U.S. dollar assets, especially official assets, launching some kind of geopolitical tirade or something like that. When, in fact, the when and where they sell corresponds to these periods that we see that, that are you know global dollar shortages. So the reason they're selling not because they're ditching the dollars, because the dollar is being de-dollared from them. They're involuntarily being de-dollared, and therefore they're trying to manage this dollar shortage as best they can by selling these U.S. treasuries to liquidate them, to try to supply and offset the dollar hole they're being forced into. So they're not intentionally ditching the dollar. They're being de-dollared by, by default, uh, and so they're trying to, to sell their reserves, essentially mobilize their reserves in order to offset this this dollar deficit that sh that shows up intermittently, so to have it right, so there's uh, the global money centers are extending credit. They don't like the way things look. They start withholding credit, and that's the de-dollared part you're talking about. And as a result, uh, foreign central banks have a kitty of U.S. Treasuries, and they're selling those so as to supply their internal private networks, which still owe dollars. Is that correct? And if so, this is a common question that comes up. How come you say having a lot of reserves is actually a sign of vulnerability? The Chinese have three trillion worth of U.S. Treasury, or not just U.S. Treasury, but in reserves. You, you call that a nightmare scenario. Yeah, well, there's a couple of questions there. Let's take the first one first, which is, you know, again, their selling corresponds with these dollar shortages. And so I think the way you described it is exactly right. The banking system, for whatever reasons, gets skittish like it has ever since August of 2007. Something, you know, raises the, the ire of the banking system. They, they, they pull back in the amount of dollars they're offering. And it doesn't have to be, not, you know, it doesn't have to be um, removing dollars. It could just be not growing at the sufficient rate, making dollars too expensive and too inflexible to conduct a regular business. That's monetary tightness too. So it doesn't have to be a contraction in the dollar system. It could just be not enough growth in dollars or not enough cheap dollars, not enough fluid dollars, those kinds of things. But for whatever reasons, the banking system changes its behavior. 
That causes problems in the local economy, which then the central banks usually or treasury departments, finance departments, finance ministries have to deal with. And that's when we see the selling. And interesting, if if they were purposefully de-dollarizing, then why do they buy the treasuries back during what we call reflationary periods? And that's exactly what the Chinese have done and everybody else around the world. When the when the U.S. dollar when the, when the global banking system gets back to somewhat normal reflationary condition, which means extending dollar credit again, dollar monetary resources at more reasonable terms and more fluid situations, you see the level of treasuries rise around the world, which is again. If they're de- intentionally de-dollarizing, they wouldn't do. They just ditch the treasuries and never buy them back. So it's a correlate. It's a very good, strong correlation between dollar shortage, not dollar shortage, selling treasuries, buying treasuries, and that's basically the entire history of the last fifty years has been exactly that. When the euro dollar system is expanding, the level of treasuries in foreign hands also expands as an indirect consequence of the dollar doing its global reserve currency. And that gets us into the other part of your question, which is why is China's position as holding the largest stockpile of reserves on the planet, why does that mean the biggest nightmare? And the reason is because what that says is China has the greatest dollar need because by accident, by purpose, you know, unintentional policies, starting with the peg of one to the dollar, because so many dollars had flowed into China or China needed so many dollars to trade on global markets, they were able to, to increase their stockpile to this immense proportion. And what that means is the larger they have as a stockpile, that must also mean the bigger the dollar problem they have that created the stockpile. So if you have an enormous stockpile and you have an enormous dollar problem, which one, which, which one wins out when you mobilize the stockpile or does, or does the dollar problem? Uh, become the bigger, the greater need. And it, what we've seen, especially in China, but also elsewhere, is that, you know, central banks, again, they're not good at being substitutes for what a, do- a dynamic euro dollar marketplace provides. So even when they're selling treasuries and mobilizing, they're using, the reason I use scare quotes is because they're not necessarily just selling them. They could be using them as collateral in term repo trades. They could be using them as collateral in derivatives trades currency swaps, all sorts of things off the books, on the books. We don't really know how they're being used because especially the Chinese don't really report to us how they're being used. So what happens is you have this, 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 this mismatch between a dynamic, you know, a big dollar problem that a dynamic euro dollar marketplace used to supply to your country. And then when that, get, when that starts to recede and pull back, you're a central bank operating bureaucratically behind the scenes, clandestinely, whatever. You're not a good enough substitute for that dynamic marketplace. So even though you have a massive pile of treasuries, it's not the same thing as offsetting or perfectly uh, being a perfect substitute to the dollars that used to flow into your system. And that's why in your article, you bring up what the last two uh, heads of the People's Bank of China, the governors there, why they're bringing up the special drawing rights, not as a political intrigue of some sort, but as a a plea for help to alleviate this dollar shortage that they're uh, focusing on or that they're experiencing. Yeah, that's Jeff- the biggest thing, right? I mean, I mean, you know, it's look, if you're if you're if you're actively purposely de-dollarizing, you've got currency to fi- you've got an alternative currency to fill in the gap as you rece- as the dollars recede, you're 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 offsetting it with something else to replace it. If you're involuntarily being de-dollared, all you have is currency removed. 
And therefore, you have all these deflationary consequences to deal with. And what Yigang has said, especially going back to 2017, is we need to start using thinking about SDRs as that currency to help us fill in this enormous dollar gap that, oh, by the way, in March of 2020 became absolutely enormous. And it's going to cause all sorts of massive problems, especially for emerging market economies who are highly dependent and highly susceptible to these dollar problems. So we have dollars receding, not voluntarily, but because they're being de-dollared, and there's no currency left to fill in the gap. And that's where a deflationary leaky bucket scenario comes from. Jeff, last question. We're talking about spy thrillers. Have you or do you enjoy reading anything and uh, by who? Tom Clancy, John Le Carre, uh, Ian Fleming? I spend very little time on fiction and spend most of my time. It's really sad what you said at the beginning. I, I do. I tend to read mostly research, um, especially primary source research, which is pretty pretty time intensive. But I think it's 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 especially rewarding because when you look at primary source material, you're looking at it unfiltered. You're actually seeing the data and what was you know contemporary sources. What were they saying? What were they thinking? It's not colored by the lens of modern economics. And therefore, you can kind of get to the truth a lot faster. But that's, it's a very labor-intensive process, and it leaves me not much time to do some of these other things, you know, fiction. And I, don't, I don't even watch movies. <laughs> that's why we love you, Jeff. You're, you're doing all that, and then you're sharing it with us, and we're eternally grateful. If anyone wants to read more, you did a follow-up article, and it's called More to Being De-Dollared. And that will be both in the YouTube description below this video, or if you're listening to a podcast, just check the podcast notes and you'll find the links to all those shows. Jeff, we're moving on to our last topic. And when I saw this last Friday, we recorded our show a week ago. This came out on Friday evening and afternoon. I was, uh, I was just surprised. I shouldn't be, but I was just, I couldn't believe it, the way it was framed. And it's all about the central bank and that they're going to create inflation, and that they're serious about it. No more gains. 13 years, but now we're serious. And uh, it, you wrote it. It's called Not This Again, July 17th, blog post, Alhambra Investments. What prompted you to set, to write Not This Again? Frustration, Emil. <laughs> because, you know, it's... it's and I know you're smiling about it, and people probably who aren't familiar with this probably won't get the joke, but it's it's just this is absolutely absurd stuff. But it, again, it, the point is, Jay Powell is doing everything, everything in his power to convince the world that we're going into an inflationary scenario because he realizes the deflationary pressures are so immense. He has to do anything and everything to convince you that. They're going to do it this time. We mean it. We're at, we're going to print money. We're going to do everything we possibly can and we're going to let it get out of control. And that's really what this is about is the idea that they're saying we really mean it this time. We're going to let it get way out of control. So you better believe us. Jeff, you dropped out. Can you hear me okay? I can. Okay, super. Um, all right. Well, we'll just continue. For the audience, if I haven't been able to edit this out, there, you see it live. We're not as perfect as it may seem to you. We're not as, we're not the Regis Philbin and uh, Dick Clark that you guys imagine us to be. Uh, Jeff, let me read to you. This is the article I read from Bloomberg. It's by Tim Guy. He is a Bloomberg opinion writer. And 
This, the title was called, The Fed is Setting the Stage for Major Policy Change. And this was the subject line. Policymakers have begun talking about letting the inflation rate rise above 2%, above its 2% target. Look for a formal statement soon. Now, if you'll spare me just 30 seconds, I'm going to read this first paragraph. And I want you to hold on to your chair. Just find inner peace. Okay, Jeff, this is, I feel this is going to affect you. So I'm just giving you fair warning. Here it is, first paragraph. For the Federal Reserve, this time is really different. Having learned a hard lesson in the last recovery that don't, might, don't tighten monetary policy too early, the central bank is leaning in the opposite direction in practice. That means the Fed will not just emphasize actual inflation over forecasted inflation, but will also attempt to push the inflation rate above its 2% target. It's a whole new ballgame. Jeff, tell the audience whether you're laughing or crying. And both. <laughs> it's ridiculous, right? I mean, first of all, it's not a whole new ball game. And second of all, it's like the guy who says, I really mean it this time after saying, I really mean it this time 15 times beforehand. You know, one of these times he might actually really mean it. No, it's just, it's an absurd theater. It's, it's nothing more than performance drama and it's not a very good one. Um, symmetry is what we're really talking about or what they're talking about. They, they call it symmetric policy. All that really means is when they go through, when the economy goes through a period of undershooting the inflation target because the central banks don't know what they're doing, central banks are going to say, well, we're going to do everything we can to get inflation back up to target, but then we're going to run, let it run hot for a specific amount of time so that we can get not just inflation back to target, we can get the whole economy reflated back to where it was before this disinflation started to show up. So it's not just, it's not about, it's almost price level targeting as much as rather than into the inflation targeting, inflation rate targeting. And what it really means is they're trying to further convince you that the, the near future or beyond the, the immediate horizon is going to be inflationary. What they're saying essentially is you don't have to worry about the central bank because we're not going to get in the way. There's nothing that's going to stop inflation this time because last time, obviously, According to our theory, it was us who stopped the inflation. We, we tightened too soon. We took QE off too soon, whatever their, their, whatever their excuse is. So but they're they, trying they, to take that I'm away. I'm sorry from to interrupt you, Jeff. They took QE. Uh, well, they started to raise interest rates once in 2014, once again at the end of 2015. That's seven, eight years later. That's too soon. And then they started to tighten QE a couple years later. How much time do you need? Yeah, and that's, I mean, realistically, this is all crap. And this is all, you know, this is why we call it absurd is they're really reaching for the excuses for why this, this never had, you know, they're supposed to have inflation at a 2% target, which is supposed to be consistent with a healthy growing economy. We have neither the inflation at the 2% target, no matter what you think about, you know, uh, inflation measures, CPI, PC, those kinds of things. We don't have that. We don't have a healthy economy. And so how do we explain that? And then we have the problem of 2020, which is this massive disruption in the dislocation in the global economy to go along with the global financial crisis number two. So we have all of these bad things stacking up against these deflationary bad things stacking up against the situation. And you can start to understand from that position why they're so adamant about trying to convince everyone inflation is going to happen. They're good. The Fed's going to do whatever it takes. And oh, by the way, we're not going to stop it. 
We're going to let it go. You're going to you're going to have to worry about you know 1970s style inflation. And the reason they want you to think that is because the alternative is really that bad. A deflationary circumstance that is you know, what we're really facing here. What the bond market is telling us is something that that in the central banker handbook is the worst case. So they would rather tell you and risk uncontrolled inflation because that's preferable to the situation that we're actually facing right now. Jeff, uh, in my advanced age, I've actually become more mellow politically, and uh, I'm more interested in pragmatism as opposed to uh, ideology. So whenever I hear differing opinions that I don't agree with, I don't reject them offhand. But I, this one I just have a lot of trouble with, and I don't want to. But when earlier you mentioned the word symmetry, and for people who don't understand where that is coming from, uh, I believe it was mid-2019 that they put into the FM, FOMC statement, they said, they put in that word, symmetry. And as you explained in the article, that is supposed to be a, a neon signal to the market. Holy Jesus, tighten your belt. Inflation is coming. For this, I don't, this, it's like a, I interpret it as a delusion of grandeur. I don't want to, you know, I want to give them credit. But do they really believe that when they added that one word, that the markets were going to jump? Yeah, it actually was a year before that. It was May 2018. And remember May 20, or actually June 2018. I think it was the June 2018 statement. June 2018, yeah. Going off, of, yeah. And it was in response to what had happened on May 29th, as you pointed out, you know, in one of the early segments that, what did you call it, the the full dry heave of the bond market. I mean, it was a very clear deflationary signal in the bond market that showed up in the middle of what was supposed to be this acceleration in inflation and growth. Globally synchronized growth was supposed to lead to interest rates rising, and all of a sudden we had this really very sharp signal that, hey, something's wrong here. And what happened was the Fed responded to that by thinking, well, we got to do something because we just had the sharp drop in bond yields that, 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 that's not consistent with the scenario that we're trying to, trying to get people to buy into. Therefore, they added the word symmetry and symmetric policy, inflationary policy to their, their uh, FOMC statement. So it basically became a standard element of policy in May of 2018 with the idea that that would maybe offset some of this deflationary pressure. They would reassure the market that, yes, we're going to let, and we're not just going to, we're not just forecasting inflation because of the low unemployment rate and accelerating growth that we're predicting. We're actually going to let it run farther and faster because we're, 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 our goal now is symmetric. We're going to let it go hot for a long period of time to make up for all of the years that it wasn't hot. And that was supposed to signal to the market, oh, this really is, infl they really mean it this time. This really will lead to inflation because there will be nothing to stop it. And it's a complete misread of the situation because the bond market was saying, look, you're not going to even have to worry about symmetry because the inflation is never going to happen. And so the idea of adding the word symmetry as an offset to this thing that happened in May 29th was just, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. It's the cart before the horse or the, actually the cart behind the, or the horse behind the cart or something, however you want to call it. And again, you know, that's why. At the same time the statement was released, I believe it was June 13th, 2018, that was the day the Eurodollar futures curve inverted for the first time because the market was saying, these guys just don't get it. They really don't get it. Here we are telling them there's something wrong in the market, and their answer is to try to reassure us that they have it right and will let it become right no matter what happens. It's just 
it's completely absurd. And I think, you know, the point for 2020 is we're doing this again. It didn't work in 2018, obviously, but now with things even worse now than they were two years, two years ago, this is supposed to be some magical treatment that gets us past this, this major hole that we're already into. It's weird. It's odd. And Jeff, you, this is one of the articles where you did and seem like a non sequitur. Whoever's not paying attention to you just said, that, oh, by the way, the bond market is at such and such a rate. Just very quickly, final question as we wrap up. Where are the bond yields today? What are they indicating about the uh, our near-term future? Well, the bond, you know, for a couple, well, maybe even a week, less than a week there back in, I believe it was uh, early June, perhaps. I'm, I'm going off memory, but, you know, there was this mainstream infatuation with the fact that the yield curve had steepened and the long end had kind of started to sell off. And, the, and everybody said, oh, God, look, it's, you know, the five, the, the curve between the five-year and the 30-year is starting to signal this exactly what Jay Powell, it's the, the, the very beginning of the inflationary pressures are starting to show up in the bond market. And it was nothing more than this this tiny little, smallest little hiccup in yields because markets never go in a straight line, especially on a short-run basis. They move all over the place. And yet that was hyped into this major, massive thing. Well, it's interesting that you don't see any articles about the 530s anymore because the, the yield curve has fallen back again. It's been distorted and flattened out. And again, uh, nominal yields are, are, are near their lows and in some places at their lows. The front end of the curve and the bills are flattened around 11, 10 basis points in yield, which is a high demand for bills. So again, the bond market, and it's not just, uh, you know, it's not just the treasury market, it's also yields around the world where the global bond market is saying, what inflation? You, you know, you can talk about symmetry all you want. It's not possible. It's not happening. For the audience, if you would like to participate in the show, ask us questions, please do. I promise that I read every single Twitter uh, question, every single YouTube comment. I am not always able to respond to all of them, and I feel terrible about that. But it does help steer the show. We learn what you're interested in. And that's what this is all about, is teaching, sharing, learning, and trying to get through this difficult time together. Jeff, it was a great show. I loved it. I can't wait to do it again next week. Take care. Thank you, Neil. Have a good weekend.